Alright, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, on this particular day, this special day of Ash Wednesday, we ask your blessing not only on our studies here of the Acts of the Apostles, but also help us to give us uh, give us some insight as to how this leads into um, our celebration and uh, observance of Lent beginning today. So we ask your blessing and our efforts. We give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name. Now, of course, the Acts of the Apostles doesn't actually uh, lend itself a, a lot in the way to uh, the observance of Lent, but I think if we sort of associate today's uh, beginning of Lent, and I see most of you uh, have 34 heads and, you know, that's okay, uh, today is the day that you should have. So we ask uh, the, the Lord to, to bless us and help us to be reminded of what these ashes stand for. And we're going to spend a little time later uh, this morning on some of the observances of uh, of Lent. But the chapters that we're going to be talking about today, chapters 10 through 12, uh, the author of this book here uh, titles this the beginning or the inauguration of the Gentile mission. And that's true and that's what it is. Um, but I think I would almost really like to call these a couple chapters or three chapters, a a clash of cultures. Because what we are beginning to see here is the transition in thought, in mind, and in action of the apostles from what they had observed throughout their life now to something entirely different. And really, is it different? No, it isn't. Because what Christ is trying to get these apostles to see is really going back to not only Moses, the time of Moses, but even the time before that. And I want to show you uh, how some of the Old Testament scriptures really tie into this going back to a more simple life, a life of love rather than a life of laws. And that is what we're going to be seeing today. And I think that some of the stories, particularly these visions, are rather interesting. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, I think that's just hocus pocus and That's just Luke's way of kind of getting things going here. No, that's not really true. The Holy Spirit had to kind of work overtime, you might say, in these early days to get this movement going and develop in the way that God wanted Christianity to develop. So, because the chapters are rather short in numbers of words and so forth. I'm going to do some reading, which I don't particularly like to do, 
but because there are so many interesting little points that I would like to bring out. Okay. The vision between the visions, I should say, they're plural because there's more than one, between Peter and Cornelius, I think is very, very interesting. And it had to be brought about in this way because just trying to convince one man convincing another is not always uh, the fastest way nor the best way. It says, now in Caesarea, and I hope that you've used your maps to kind of see where some of these little towns are uh, because it will help you to visualize uh, the distance between one and the other. Okay. It says, now in Caesarea, which is a seaside town in northern uh, part of Israel, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the cohort called the Italicum, devout and God-fearing along with his whole household, who used to give alms generously to the Jewish people and pray to God constantly. Now, this is a uh, unusual situation here. Here we have a Roman person of authority who is blending his um, everyday life, you might say, as well as his, that of his family, into being at least compatible with the Jewish people. And he prayed to God constantly, which was something that the Romans didn't do as a rule. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he saw plainly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius, and he looked intently at him and seized with fear, said, What is it, sir? He said to him, Your prayers and almsgiving have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now, send some men to Joppa and summon one, Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with another Simon, a tanner who has a house by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, when the angel spoke to, when the angel who spoke to him, pardon me, uh, had left, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from his staff and explained everything to them and sent them to Joppa. Now, where is the current city of Joppa? Tel Aviv, that's right. All right, so that would be south and some distance. Okay. Now, we go to the other side. The next day, while they were on their way and nearing the city, Peter went up to the roof terrace to pray about noontime. He was hungry and wished to eat, and while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven open and something resembling a large sheet coming down, lowering to the ground by its four corners. In it were all the earth's four-legged animals and reptiles and the birds of the sky. Must have been a pretty big sheet. Uh, a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. But Peter said, Certainly not, sir, for never have I eaten anything profane, profane and unclean. And the voice spoke to him again a second time, saying, What God has made clean, you are not to call 
dreadful pain. This happened three times, and then the object was taken up into the sky. Here we have the beginning of what I call the clash of cultures. All right, Moses had decreed for dietary and hygiene purposes that certain animals, birds, etc., were not to be eaten. All right, because, for example, certain birds and animals, birds of prey particularly, and other animals are scavengers, and they carry diseases. All right, that is a normal kind of thing that uh, was given to the people as a dietary uh, rule or law to observe, particularly when they were traveling or wandering in the desert. They were very short of food, if you remember, and they probably scavenged for virtually anything that they could eat for a period of time. And they moaned and groaned against God and Moses until God provided the manna for them and quail. But over a period of time, these dietary laws worked their way into the religious observances to the point where, particularly after the Babylonian exile, everything that they did was a religious observance and something against the will of God. Well, that wasn't the case. Let me give you a point from yesterday's readings at the Mass yesterday, all right? This is from the book of Genesis, right from the beginning, when the story of creation. God created the great sea monsters and all kinds of swimming creatures with which the waters teemed and all kinds of winged birds. God saw how good it was, and God blessed them. All right, that's referring to in here <clears throat> what I just read. What God has made, don't you call profane. Later on in the same uh, section of the book of Genesis, it said, God blessed them, saying, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. And he's talking to Adam, of course, in this case. Uh, And he's saying, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all living things that move on the earth. Excuse me for my clumsiness here. See, I give you every seed-bearing plant all over the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it, to be your food. And to all the animals of the land, all the birds of the air, and all the living creatures that crawl on the ground, I give the green plants for food. So God is not condemning anything. He's saying that you have all of these things. uh, And of course he's talking to Adam and Eve in this allegory here. uh, And they are in the Garden of Eden, so there is no evil there. But nevertheless, the point is taken that, again, what God has made, we cannot call profane. Now, 
We have to take that a step further because later on that is again translated into cultures that God is saying through Moses and now through Jesus Christ that God loves all mankind and all mankind are to love God. And that just because the Jewish people feel that they are the chosen people of God, that doesn't mean that God does not love the Romans and the Egyptians and, you know, all other nations. Further down in Psalm 8, says, you have put him rule over all the works, you have put mankind, I should say, uh, over the works of your hands, putting all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yes, even the birds of the field, the birds, the beasts of the field, sorry, and the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatever swims in the paths of the sea. So, you see, what has developed in these years since Moses is a lot of rules that have become misunderstood and they were looked upon as God-given when they were not. They were developed for hygiene and health purposes only. So what now we are trying to do is to start separating some of this stuff and looking at it in a different way. And of course, this develops the clash of cultures. While Peter was in doubt about the meaning of the vision he had seen, the men sent by Cornelius asked for Simon's house and arrived at the entrance. They called out inquiring whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. As Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, There are three men here looking for you, so get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without hesitation, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your being here? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, respected by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in and showed them hospitality. Hospitality in the Jewish culture was a very important part uh, of their lifestyle and they would invite strangers of any kind who asked for um, help in that regard into their home and uh, looked upon it as an honor to God. The next day he got up and went with them. So you see, it takes a day or two to get from Joppa to Caesarea and back again. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called him uh, together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, 
Cornelius met him and, falling at his feet, paid him homage. Peter, however, raised him up, saying, Get up, I myself am also a human being. And while he conversed with him, he went in and found many people gathered together and said to them, You know that this is an unlawful, it is unlawful for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a Gentile. There again, we have a clash of cultures. This whole idea of exclusiveness of the Jewish people got down to the point where they, it was against a Jewish law to enter a Gentile home. And even worse, to eat with them. And now God is asking them to change that. But God has shown me that I should not call any person profane or unclean. And that is why I came without objection when sent for. May I ask them, why you summoned me? Cornelius replied, Four four days ago at this hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, why are they mentioning the time? Why? No. Three three o'clock in the afternoon was the traditional daily offering time for the Jewish people to offer a prayer. Remember, they prayed three or more times a day. Uh, and three o'clock was the day for the afternoon offering. Right. So it was a very important time. Okay. And remember, that is approximately the time that tradition says Christ died on the cross. Four days ago, at this hour, three in the afternoon, I was at prayer in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling robes stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your almsgiving uh, remember before God. Prayer and almsgiving, two of the three penitential rites for Lent. Send therefore to Joppa and summon Simon. Now he's retelling this story, that's why it sounds familiar here. Summon Simon, who's called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you were kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter's speech now. Then Peter proceeded to speak and said, In truth, I see that God shows no partiality. Paul uses that in some of his other letters as well. Rather in, now of course this is Peter saying this, but Paul uses that statement in other letters. Rather, in every nation, whoever fears him and acts uprightly is is acceptable to him. You know the word that he sent to the Israelites as he proclaimed peace throughout through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. What has happened over all Judea, beginning in Galilee, 
after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. This man God raised up on the third day and granted that he be visible, not by all the people, but to us, the witnesses chosen by God in advance, who ate and drank with them after he rose from the dead. He commissioned us then to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Anybody have a problem with any of this? What about the statement it says by hanging him on a tree? Huh? Anybody have a problem with that? You didn't question it? Why doesn't it say hanging him on a cross? The word cross did not come into common use until much later. All right? The crosses of that time were just pieces of rough hewn trees. But there's more to this than that. It was part of Moses' law, or laws attributed to Moses, that only the worst of criminals would be hanged from a tree. And anyone who was hung from a tree would be considered the worst of criminals. Well, Jesus chose to be crucified this way. Remember, God was always in command. Jesus knew what this was going to be beforehand. He accepted this death and was looked upon as the lowest of criminals. All right. Because it was only by stooping to the very lowest could he show the extent of his love for all mankind. It was a measure of his love. But it's interesting that it was put here because that's the way it was looked upon by the average people of that time. While Peter was still speaking these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the word. The circumcised believers who had accompanied Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit should have been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they could hear them speaking in tongues and glorifying God. And then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit even as we have? He ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they invited him to stay for a few days. 
So here we have now the beginning of the door opening to the Gentiles. The whole idea of what the Jewish people were to do centuries before, but never did. Which brings up the point of God's plan of salvation and our participation in it. As I've said before, each of us has a role in God's plan of salvation. But if we don't fulfill that, it's going to get done by somebody or somehow. But you won't get the credit for it. Right? Fulfilling your role in God's plan of salvation is very important to you, each one of you. All right? Now the apostles and the brothers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles too had accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers confronted him saying, you entered the house of uncircumcised people and ate with them? That's a big no-no for Jewish people. Peter began and explained it to them step by step, saying, and of course now he's repeating the story, <clears throat> I was at prayer in the city of Joppa when in a trance I had a vision, something resembling a large sheet coming down, lowered from the sky by its four corners, and it came to me, looking intently into it. I observed the and observed and saw the four-legged animals of the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice say to me, Get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. But I said, Certainly not, sir, because nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. You see, as I've said before, repetition was their way of emphasizing important points. But a second time a voice from heaven answered, What God has made clean, you are not to call profane. This happened three times, and then everything was drawn up again into the sky. And just then three men appeared with the house where we were, who had been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to accompany them without discriminating. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He related to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send someone to Joppa, and summon Simon, who is called Peter, who will speak words to you by which you are, which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and it had as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift he gave us, when we came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to be able to hinder God? When they heard this, they stopped objecting and glorified God, saying, 
God has granted life giving repentance to the Gentiles too. Very important point. If then God gave them the same gift he gave us, that is the Holy Spirit, when we came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, that's Peter, to be able to hinder God? When they heard this, they stopped objecting and glorified God, saying, God has then granted life, giving repentance to the Gentiles. So now it is Peter and the rest of the apostles who were not with Peter during these two vision periods. And now he's repeating the story to them who are now beginning to see that they have to ignore or forget uh, those Jewish laws that they observed, observed for so many years and now begin to look upon the Gentiles as equals. A difficult thing. And of course, not all of the Jewish people, particularly the leaders of the temple, would accept that. And that is what starts the problems. Because those who were converted, the Jewish people who were converted to the Christian way of life, and now are beginning to associate with Gentiles and calling them into their homes or or going into their homes either way. And now they are beginning to invite them into the temple because remember, they haven't stopped being Jews. They are just changing some of their attitude and ideas. But as, as far as the objective of being a faithful Jew, that has not left them yet. The church at Antioch. Now, let me stop here for a minute. If you go to your maps, particularly the first journey of Paul, And if you look over sort of north of Jerusalem, about three inches in the map, slightly to the right, you'll see Antioch, right? All right, that's Antioch of Syria. Now, if you go a little bit further north to the left, you'll see another Antioch. That's Antioch of Presidium. The Antioch of Syria is the one that we will be mostly involved with. Because Judaism, I'm sorry, Christianity, shortly after this time period, began to migrate and center around Antioch of Syria. That became later the center of Christianity for a number of years during 
the persecution. So keep in mind, because it gets a little confusing here in the next passages that I'll be reading as to which Antioch they're talking about. And to be more confusing, there were several Antioch towns throughout the Roman Empire. They were established by Antiochus IV, uh, a Greek Greek king uh, that lived about 300 years before this time period. Antiochus IV. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution, just as I said, that rose because of Stephen, went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews. All right, that was part of their culture, but that's going to change. There were some Cypriots and Cretans among them. However, Those who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks as well, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to go to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, He rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord in firmness of heart, for he was a good man filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. And a large number of people were, a large number of people was added to the Lord. And then he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a while, or for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a large number of people. And it was in Antioch of Syria that the disciples were first called Christians. So this didn't happen right away. It sounds like a week or so after Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost and so forth that all this happened. No, this has taken uh, several years. We think that, and there is no way to prove or disprove it, but we think that St. Paul came along around ten years after the death and resurrection of Christ. But there's there's no records to, to say which way Okay. Let's go on to verse 27. At that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, it's interesting because I just said, you know, Antioch is about three inches on the map north of, and of course, the wording here, but I explained that, I hope, uh, once before. It's always, Jerusalem is always up when compared to any other location in that area, regardless. And there are two reasons for that, but we talked about that before, so I won't go into that again. At that time, some prophets came uh, down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted that by the Spirit that there would be 
a severe famine all over the world, and it happened under Claudius, that is the Roman emperor. emperor. So the disciples determined that according to ability, each should send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. This they did, sending it to the presbyters in care of Barnabas and Saul. Uh, Saul makes, uh, Paul makes a great uh, use of that in some of his letters later on, this uh, collection here. It's not that important, though. We're not going to get into that right now. Okay. Let's go on. Herod's persecution of the Christians. See, it's beginning to start now. About that time, King Herod laid hands upon some members of the church to harm them. He had James, the brother of John, killed by the sword. And when he saw that this was pleasing to the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is at the same time as Passover. He had taken him into custody and put in prison under the guard of four soldiers, squads of four soldiers each. He intended to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter thus was kept in prison, but prayed by the church, by prayer by the church, was fervently being made to God on his behalf. On the very night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter, secured by double chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while outside the doors, guards kept watch on the prison. Suddenly the angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and awakened him, saying, Get up, quickly. The chains fell from his wrists. The angel said to him, Put on your belt and your sandals. He did so. And then he said to him, Put on your cloak and follow me. So he followed him out, not realizing that what was happening through the angel was real. He thought it was he was seeing a vision. They passed the first guard, then the second, and came to the iron gate leading out to the city which opened for them by itself. They emerged and made their way down an alley. This sounds like something out of a television movie. Okay? They made their way down an alley, and suddenly the angel left them. Then Peter, recovering his senses, and said, Now I know for certain that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people who had been uh, expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark. John Mark, Mark, St. Mark the Evangelist. When there were many people gathered in prayer, when he knocked on the gateway door, a maid named Rhoda came to answer it. She was so overjoyed when she recognized Peter's voice that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. They told her, you are out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so. But they kept saying, it is an angel. But Peter continued to knock. And when they opened it, they saw him and were astounded. He motioned to them with his hand to be quiet 
and explained to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison and said, Report this to James and the brothers. When he left and went to other places, and then he went and left, went to other places. At daybreak there was no common commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Herod, after instituting a search, but not finding him, ordered the guards tried and executed. And then he left Judea to spend some time in Caesarea. By the way, just as a little side, I was in Rome one time uh, visiting, this before I lived there, and I went to the church where there are a number of relics from Christ's crucifixion, including the true cross, the cross of uh, the good thief, the crown of thorns, the nails, and these chains. And I was blessed with having these chains put around me for a moment. And, uh, you could almost feel the Holy Spirit, you know, involved in that. It was quite, quite an honor. Yeah. Herod's death, uh, which is uh, rather a gruesome type of thing, but let's go on. He had long been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, who now came to him in a body. After winning over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they sued for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's territory. On an appointed day, Herod, attired in royal robes and seated on the rostrum, addressed them publicly. The assembled cried out, This is the voice of God, not a man. At once the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not ascribe the honor to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God continued to spread and grow. Okay. I'm going to leave the rest because it really is, should be added to chapter 13. Okay. So you can see how difficult it was probably for many of the Jews Take, for example, supposing some very uh, important personage came and said, uh, now that uh, the Pope has uh, agreed to resign, I am uh, appointed by God uh, to take his place, and I'm going to start making some changes. Okay, And let's say that this person started and came in and uh, wanted to change all of the rules and regulations that we as Catholics have observed for centuries. How would you feel about it? You know, whether right or wrong, it would be difficult to accept what he said. Or she said, for example. Alright? Supposing it was a woman that did it. I'm taking over as Pope. I'm gonna wear a dress. Oh. instead of that long white thing. And I'm not going to wear that pointed cap. I'm going to put on a nice little tiara. What difference does it make, you know, 
The point is, the changes that would come about on such circumstances. That is what these people were facing. So you can understand how some of them had legitimate concerns about what Christ, through the apostles, was trying to do. But if they would look back at their own scriptures, they would see that most of the laws that they were observing as God-given were not really God-given. And they had nothing to do with worshiping God in the first place. Most of them were simply laws that were used to kind of preserve their own identity. And unfortunately, that is still the case. Well, I don't want to get into current observances. That's beside the point right now. Uh, What I really want you to see is the difficulty in the minds and the hearts of true, honest Jewish people who were being confronted now with this whole idea of Christianity. And later on, when you get into some of the letters of Paul and letters to the Hebrews, you will see where they are actually uh, saying that the whole Mosaic law is now no longer necessary to be observed, with a few exceptions. The God-given rules of the Ten Commandments, those never change and must be observed by all mankind. But all of these other detailed laws are now being put aside, except, of course, those that are for health reasons, but let's separate the health reasons from the religious observances and get back to some of the simple things that were given to mankind in the first place. So you're going to see this transition now from Jewish culture and this mentality mentality of exclusiveness to an open-door policy, observing and inviting all mankind in. And that's, of course, the whole essence of Christianity. It is a law of love, not a law of laws. Uh, That is what we're going to be studying, really, through the rest of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. This is, by the way, sort of a halfway point also. And rightly so, because it is the fifth lesson. I'd like to talk about a few other things. And one of those is the whole idea of Lent. Lent, by the way, Lent is often talked about as being 40 days of observances of penance, fasting, uh, prayer, and almsgiving. Is it really 40 days? 
No, 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 no. Uh, Sister Agnes Marie is the one that, uh, you know, way back in the third grade told you that one. Uh -uh. No way. No. You know, six times seven is 42 to begin with, and you have uh, a number of a few days added on later on. Um, remember I said back in one of our earlier meetings that the Jewish people had this uh, three uh, sacred numbers and 40, when 40 days uh, was used, it was used as a convenience number <clears throat> representing a long but imprecise period of time, whether it be days, weeks, months, or years. So take the idea of 40 days uh, of Lent to be somewhat um, analogous to that. It's not a precise period of time. Uh, depending on how you look at it, if you uh, take it up to Holy Thursday, which is technically the official end of Lent, uh, that would be 43. Alright, if you take it on uh, through to Easter morning, it would be 46. So, but what difference does it make? Yeah. The whole idea is sort of a um, way of observing in the same way that Jesus did. The retreat that he started after his baptism, but before he started his public ministry, he went into the desert for, again, a period of 40 days, no one knows for sure, um, as a retreat, you might say, and that's when he was tempted uh, by the devil. Uh, we are now observing a similar period, not that we expect to be tempted by the devil in that way, but you probably will when asked to eat a second piece of nice that chocolate cake or something of that kind or a, a hamburger on Friday or something like that. Uh, that's the temptation, but not quite to the same degree as, as Christ was tempted by the devil. But nevertheless, it's in that same line, you might say, in preparation for the observance of our most holy week of our, the Christian year, and that is Holy Week. Alright. Uh, but why? Alright. Is it time that we should, you might say, re-examine our walk or our journey with Christ? Find out why and where are we going, or where we are going and why. Or are we going? Or are we turning away? I assume because most of you who are here um, are searching for a close, closer walk with Christ, that you are on the right path. We're making that assumption, okay? Um, but there are many who are not, unfortunately. One of the things I would like to start having you think about is the idea of doing something that is special for this time period, but in a positive way. This old idea of, uh, you know, as children we used to give up candy and we'd give up this or we'd give up that. Giving up something 
um, just to hurt ourselves is not really very productive. What we recommend now, the church recommends, is that you do something in a positive way, not only for your own uh, personal benefit, but for the benefit of someone else or other people in general. Okay, uh, That might require giving up time uh, to do something that is positive. Uh, it might require... Uh, giving up television time or a hobby time or sleep time or something like that. Uh, but in order to do something positive, that is what you're being encouraged to do. Let's talk about this idea of fast and abstinence. Uh, most of us, well, not all, but most of us who have reached a certain age uh, don't have to worry too much about fasting. All right? Abstinence of meat. Today is fast and abstinence for everybody. Friday, Good Friday is a day of fast and abstinence for everybody. Fridays of, all Fridays of Lent are a day of abstinence from meat. Now, why meat? A lot of people will say, well, what's wrong with the meat? I mean, you know, why meat? Anyone want to give a good answer? But what's wrong with the meat? I mean, you know. The answer you should truly give them it is not the meat. It's the symbol of offering something to remind us of what happened on Friday. Okay. The giving up of meat is not related to meat. In many cultures, people don't eat meat every day. And in poverty countries, they probably don't meet, eat meat very often at all. All right, so it's not meat. In those cultures, they are asked to give up something else. To remind them of what happened on Friday. Good Friday. All right. So it's a symbol. It is not the meat itself. It is a symbol of something that is being offered to remind us of what happened on Good Friday. Does that make sense? Okay, I hope so. You remember that, young man. Okay. Prayer and almsgiving. Again, no one is going to ask you how much, but giving to the poor is important. And a special offering to the poor during this time period is a special blessing. Again, no one is going to ask you how much that is up to 
each of you as individuals. But it is an important part. Prayer is extremely important. All right. Uh, how many of you have one of these little black books? These are daily devotionals for this particular year. And if you don't have them, go over to the office and ask for one. They're free. They'll give you one. Okay. But they are, are something that you can spend each day with a very, very brief prayer and meditation. Highly recommended. But don't stop just there. Alright. This is, takes uh, less than five minutes. Uh, your prayer time, particularly during Lent, should take a little bit more than just five minutes. Okay. Um, Mr. Parcell? I haven't seen her today. No. No. Oh, there, I'm sorry, I didn't see you back there. Oh. Sorry about that. Sorry there, Christine, I didn't see you back there. But prayer is extremely important, not only during Lent, but all times. Prayer is a way of God communicating with us and we communicating with him. It isn't done through visions and angels and all of that kind of thing. That was very important in the early days of the church. It was a way of the Holy Spirit getting his message across fast. All right. But it is not the way things work today. The church is the spokesperson for the, for God. But prayer is the way that we communicate with God and God with us. Extremely important. Another important thing is confession. The church has a rule of what we call the, well, I want to get into the rules part of it. Um, the whole idea of the church requires that to remain in good standing within the church, you must receive the Holy Communion, or let's put it this way, you must go to confession and receive Holy Communion at least once a year during this particular time, the Easter time from the first Sunday of Lent to Trinity Sunday, which is a period of, of roughly uh, five months. Okay? So there's no excuse, but confession is extremely important as part of your Latin observance. I, uh, I can't think of any other way. And people will say, well, why should I go to confession? I don't have any great sins to tell. The answer to that really is even saints went to confession on a regular basis. The Pope goes to confession on a weekly basis. Why? Not that he sins so badly that he has to go, you know. Uh, we used to say as kids, oh, well, we can go to confession on Saturday and everything will be all right. It doesn't make a difference what we do during the week. You know, 
very bad thought. Um, even if you don't have serious sins, confession or the sacrament of reconciliation, as it properly should be called, is a time for dispensing the graces necessary to keep you from sin. All the sacraments have a side benefit of dispensing special graces. And the sacrament of reconciliation has those special graces uh, necessary to help you keep from serious sin. So, if you sort of disdain the idea of going to confession and telling sins or things that you haven't uh, committed, don't make up something. You know, that's kids used to do that and still do for that matter from what I understand. Priest will say you can tell when you get a first communion group in the confessional, you know, you can tell that they've made up something simply to have something to tell the priest. Yeah. Well, come out and say you don't have any serious sins, but you recognize your own mortality and the ability to sin. And in that humility, you would like to receive the sacrament. Yes, Lou? Yes, a big difference. In the sacrament of reconciliation, that is, before a priest, you receive the sacrament, the graces that I was just telling you. When in prayer you ask for forgiveness from the Lord directly, yes, you are likely to get forgiveness. But you don't get the graces that are included with the sacrament. A good point. Yeah. And don't worry, you know, the, the sacrament of reconciliation, the format has changed a little bit over the years. You used to go behind a, a dark uh, curtain and, uh, you know, a screen and all that stuff. You don't have to do that anymore. The priest is like a doctor, you know. Doctors have seen naked bodies year after year. The next one coming in is really no different than the previous one. It's the same with the priest in the confessional. He's heard the same stuff over and over and over. He is not there to make judgments unless unless uh, there are some very unusual circumstances. Okay, But he is there to represent not only the church, but he is represent uh, God himself in administering the sacrament. Uh, so it's important that you look at it that way. Okay. Any questions on those matters? None at all. I'm getting away too easily. Jose, you had a question. Yes, yes, that's thank you. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, as you probably all are aware of, the Pope has um, decided that it is time for him to resign. The first time in 600 years that that has happened. Uh, but there is no rule against it. 
and I think it's a courageous thing for him to do, a very positive thing, uh, and it should be looked upon as a, a progressive thing as well. He is a man who is extremely progressive, even though uh, ultra-conservative at the same time. And so I think this is a way to show um, that he's recognized reality. He is, nine, or will be 96 uh, shortly, I mean 86, pardon me, or 86 shortly. Uh, and he is frail to the point where he can no longer function as he feels he should. And therefore he is giving up uh, the papacy. Um, which opens the door then in a very quiet, um, orderly manner for the next consistory, uh, which should take place within 30 days. Uh, but I think it's great in a way because when a pope dies, uh, it is something that has to be uh, put together rather hastily and so forth. And, of course, uh, there are currently 118 cardinals that are qualified. There are about four that probably will not make it because of illness or uh, other problems, but at least there will be 114 roughly uh, cardinals who qualify. When I say qualify, there are more than 114 Cardinals, but those that are 80 or will have reached the age of 80 years by the time of the consistory, they will not be permitted to vote. They will be there, but they will not be permitted to vote. Again, it's just... Yes, there are quite a number of over 80, but there are a number that are quite young, too. Um, well, I don't know. I, no, I don't think so. I think it's a little more than that. Jennifer, do you have a question? Well, uh, because of Easter being here, it probably will not have happen before Easter. Yeah. Although, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it will not. I'm just saying it probably will not. Yeah. Uh, they'll probably wait till after Easter. Start praying for white smoke. I'm sorry? Start praying for white smoke. <laughs> well, yeah. yes, June? Are you older, uh, are you older uh, gentlemen that will be in the Yes, yes, yes. Uh, there is a lot of, a lot of jockeying, you might say, and campaigning, uh, for the position. And conversely, there are a lot of prayers for, Lord, don't let them pick me. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean me personally, but there's a lot of, uh, 
cardinals up there who are saying, I don't want any part of it. Yes, sir. Who's this again? Oh, the media. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Rush Limbaugh, is he in there yet? Yeah. Okay. Yes, sir. Yep, yep, they, they sure do. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that sells, sells, uh, newspapers, unfortunately, or magazines. Yes, Karen? Oh. And you could tell they did not know the cemetery. They didn't say books, they just kept going. In the cemetery, okay. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Uh, every Friday at 6.30. Yeah. If anyone wants to, they can look at the schedule right here. 6.30 p.m. on Friday are the Stations of the Cross at this, at this church, St. Clair. It's in observance of Christ being in the tomb from Friday afternoon until the resurrection, which is celebrated early Sunday morning. Yeah. There is no mass on Friday whatsoever. Uh, the mass in the evening is really considered the first Sunday mass. Remember, in Jewish culture, and in the early church, Sundays were considered from sundown to sundown rather than from 12 p.m., you know, to so forth, or 12 a.m., I should say. Um, and uh, we've gone back to that for a variety of reasons. And so the church has now uh, had a vigil mass on Saturday evening which is really uh, the first mass of the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer? Um, do you know what the reasoning behind the Cardinals over 80 not having a vote? What is the reasoning behind Partly because of just simply their age, not that they're not capable. The thing is, the Pope that put that into place, I don't think it was John Paul, I think it was Pope Paul VI that put that into place, felt that they didn't want Popes over 80 being elected because of the time and the disruption 
of having a uh, conclave so close together. Yeah. So it's, it's only that. They just felt that it was not wise to have somebody over the age of 80 being elected. Okay. So they chose that age that they can't vote either. Yeah. Jim? Could you very briefly go over the process of the conflict? What takes place in the uh, I don't have all of the, the details, although I can get them for you. Um, as I understand it, they are sequestered in a hotel that is has recently been built just for this purpose. Uh, it is used, while not being used for the conclave, it is being used as a hotel for priests uh, at other times, but when this does happen, all of those who are there uh, must vacate and it is uh, uh, all of the eligible uh, cardinals are brought together. They are sequestered in this hotel and in the Sistine Chapel. Now, if any of you have been to the Sistine Chapel, it is quite large, probably twice the size of our uh, church sanctuary. And so there's plenty of, of room in there for all of these priests. Uh, and they will go through a number of um, speeches, campaigning type of speeches of who should be elected, not necessarily for themselves. Uh, and then voting takes place. Um, the voting is done in a very secret way uh, so that it doesn't get out. Um, and it generally goes through several votes before there are a majority. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a secret type of thing. It's just that they don't want what is discussed inside uh, to be published. It's a simple majority. Yes. As far as I know, it is a simple majority. Yeah. Um, and in most cases, you know, it's narrowed down to a small few people even beforehand. And people will get up and say, now, I want or I recommend so-and-so cardinal so-and-so from such and such an area uh, to be elected for this reason, this reason, and this reason. Somebody else might get up and say, well, I disagree with that for this reason, etc., etc. And this goes on for several days. And then the voting begins. Yeah. But there's not really much more than that to it, except that it is all sealed off from all publicity. Yeah. And even uh, the few people that are not cardinals, such as the people that feed and, and house these uh, cardinals, are sequestered also so that they cannot get out and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Let's let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, during this holy time of Lent, help us to open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us regarding our own spiritual lives and our walk with you.
Help us to see where we can improve in accordance with your holy will, our way of life. And not only what we do spiritually for ourselves and within ourselves, but how can we help others to reflect your infinite love, your mercy, your compassion. Strengthen us then during this time that we might be the faithful servants that you want all of us to be so that at the time of Easter we can rise with you and glorify God our Father. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.